truths. All right, let's take our Bibles now and open them to Galatians chapter 3. And we'll get right into our study. It's just a privilege to be able to open up God's Word on Wednesday nights and for us to study the Scriptures in detail. And our study begins in verse number 6 tonight of the third chapter. And we're in the second part of the message, the covenant of faith. And this part of the Scripture concentrates on the covenant that God made with Abraham in the Old Testament. And the basis for the argument in this part of the Scripture is this question. Was the Abrahamic covenant a covenant of works or was it a covenant of faith? Was Abraham justified by keeping the law or was righteousness counted to him as faith or by faith only? Now, the answer to that question is found in the first statement of verse number 6, and then the following verses defend that statement. Now, if you look at verse number 6, it says, Even as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted unto him for righteousness, know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. So then they that which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is every one that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident, for the just shall live by faith. And the law is not of faith, but the man that doeth them shall live in them. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Now this evening we will continue this study in the third chapter, and we're looking at these cogent arguments that are made by the Apostle Paul on the subject of justification by faith. And this is, of course, uh, Paul's letter to the churches of Galatia. And these Christians had received the gospel, they had heard the gospel and believed it during Paul's first missionary journey. And it was the practice of the first missionaries to visit many different places and they would start churches in various places where they visited and that really didn't afford them the opportunity to spend a whole lot of time with any individual church. Now the Apostle Paul did spend 18 months in Corinth and then two years in Ephesus but spending that much time with an individual church was very unusual for him. And so the goal of the missionary then would be to convert people to Christ, of course, and then uh, to train someone to take over the church after they'd left. And hopefully God would lead that person and that person would still grow in his faith and others that were in, their ch in the church would grow in their faith as well. But this has always been a problem in missionary work that leaders don't always stay the course. Sometimes leaders go off track. Sometimes they're not strong enough to keep the work going. And as a result of that, people begin to fall away from the faith. And so it was very important for the apostles to try to keep these churches on the right track doctrinally. 
And since Paul wasn't able to spend much time with each individual church and those distances were large, large distances to traverse, that left a lot of time for people to come in that would teach certain kinds of heresies and they would infiltrate the church and lead people astray. And so the apostles would often warn the churches through the letters that we have in the New Testament. And that's one of the reasons that we receive them because these are the apostles dealing with issues that come up in the church and correcting the doctrines and so forth that the people had gone astray on. So that's what Paul is doing in this letter. And as we're very well aware by now, these Galatian churches had been infected with a, with a heresy that had been taught to them by Jews that came from Jerusalem. And the goal of those Jews was to take these converted people, these converted Gentiles, and bring them back underneath the Mosaic law to require them to be circumcised and tell them that their justification was not complete until they had been circumcised and began to practice again certain uh, certain laws of Moses or Jewish customs. So these Galatian children, uh, uh, Christians were being torn apart by two totally different diametrically opposed systems or methods of justification. Now, of course, they had first learned salvation from the Apostle Paul, and he was a Jew, and there were other Jews that were in that congregation, and all of them, Jews and Gentiles, were alike that they were now worshiping the one true God who is the God of Israel. So these are all people that are believers in Christ, but they're very confused believers. Paul spoke to them as Christians, but they were being led down a path that would destroy the doctrines of the church. And so that means, eventually, it would come to the place that these churches would be no use to the cause of Christ. And if Paul didn't correct the doctrine, then they wouldn't be witnesses for the Lord. And that really shows the the strong importance of knowing the right doctrine, because there are many churches that don't care about doctrine. Uh, All they care about is to compromise any truth that they can in order to get people to fill the pews. And those are not true churches of the Lord Jesus Christ. And nobody who's saved who does not hear and believe the truth. So the Galatian churches were headed down a legalistic path. And Paul wanted to stop that immediately by showing them that there was not a time that anyone, not at any time, was anyone ever justified by the works of the law. Well, how does he do that? Well, in the first part of chapter 3, he appealed to their experience. What happened when they got saved? How, how, how did they receive the gospel? Had Paul taught them anything about circumcision? Were they saved because they were circumcised or or because they had believed? And so he asked them about experience, and he asked them about their experience of the heart, what had happened in their heart. Had salvation been confirmed to them? And the way that uh, that God confirms salvation to us is by sending the Holy Spirit into our heart. And so he wanted to know, have you received the Holy Spirit? do, Do you have him? So he's appealing then to the experience or their experience, but experience is not always the best teacher. Now, it's a good teacher, but it's not the best teacher. Emotional responses to the gospel are very common with people, and they can be fooled with with feelings rather than the facts. So Paul doesn't want to rest his argument on their feelings, so rather he takes them to the scriptures, and this is where they will find the facts of justification. And the ultimate determiner of truth is always God's word. 
And so Paul intends them to take them to God's word because that's going to trump their feelings. So however subjective that their feelings might be, and you know, feelings can be good for us, and in those feelings, if the subjective feelings line up with the objective word of God, then that's good because then you have a double determine or a double confirmation of your standing with God. So where does Paul take them? Well, he takes them to the Old Testament scriptures and he said, if the Judaizers want to plead a relationship with God, then let's go and see what the covenant with God is based upon. How is a person made right with God? So in verse number six, he said, even as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, know ye therefore that they which are of faith The same are the children of Abraham. So he's going to bring his argument down to this and base it upon this. The children of Abraham. Who are the children of Abraham? And what does it take to be a child of Abraham? And that's a very important question. Because the Jews claimed they had a relationship with God that was based upon Abraham. That Abraham was their father. He is the father of their nation. Abraham had a relationship with God. They are children of Abraham. So therefore, they have a relationship with God. So Paul's first appeal to Abraham centers on the method by which Abraham himself became right with God. Now verse 6 says, or tells us, that Abraham's faith was accounted for righteousness. That's the thing that stands out here. Abraham's faith is accounted for righteousness. Now, last week we went back and looked at the historical record in Genesis 12 and 15, and we found that although Abraham had been given the sign of circumcision as the seal of this covenant relationship that he had with God, that seal did not come until 14 years after he had been counted righteous by faith. And so the obvious conclusion of that is circumcision had nothing nothing at all to do with the righteous standing of Abraham before God. So Abraham did not become a child of God by circumcision. He was a child of God by faith. Now in verse 7, Paul says, Know ye therefore, or because of that he's saying, they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. So that means the real children of Abraham, who are in turn the real children of God, are not those that come from natural generation. Not because he is their ancestor, but because of supernatural generation. And that is through faith in Jesus Christ. And so returning to the promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis 12, God said, through you, Abraham, all nations of the world will be blessed. And so that means that God did not intend to have a relationship with one nation only, that his relationship was not just for the Jews, but would be to the Gentiles as well. So the question now is, how do the Gentiles become children of Abraham or children of God? Well, that question is answered for us in verses 8 and 9. And the scriptures foreseeing that God would justify the heathen. That's the Gentiles. He would justify the heathen through faith, preach before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. So then, they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. Now, we notice then that Abraham's circumcision was an outward sign. Circumcision is an outward sign. Now, Paul's logic here is foolproof because if Abraham did not become a child of God by circumcision, and if the Jews did not become children of God by circumcision, 
then how would they ever expect that Gentiles could become children of God by circumcision? Circumcision is nothing more than an outward sign of what had already happened on the inside. Now, in the book of Romans, Paul addresses the same argument, only there he hits it quite a bit harder. And there's almost a caustic tone in, in Paul's voice or in his writing as you read chapters 1 and 2 as he building and building his argument through those first and second chapters I mean he is just tired of the hypocrisy of the Jews and putting all of their confidence in the law when they weren't even able to keep it correctly and he was tired of all the accusations that are made against the Gentiles when the sins of the Jews are even worse because they had been given the laws of God when the Gentiles didn't have them and so he concludes chapter 2 by saying for he is not a Jew which is one outwardly neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh but he is a Jew which is one inwardly and circumcision is that of the heart and in the spirit and not in the letter whose praise is not of men but of God so what does that tell us well it tells us that Abraham's faith was an inward sign Circumcision is an outward sign, but faith is an inward sign. Circumcision is a physical sign that is not the real thing that is to be counted. It's a sign of what God would do in the heart. So the real circumcision is what occurs inwardly through the faith of the operation of God. The outward sign is earthly, and the inward side is heavenly. Now you think about that for a moment, that the entire purpose of the ceremonial law was to be a sign of the heavenly. In the book of Hebrews, which contains great explanations about the ceremonial law, it says that all the things that Moses made in the tabernacle were made after the pattern of heavenly things. And it says those were examples, those were types, those were shadows of the heavenly. And in the 10th chapter of Hebrews 1, or 10th, uh, first verse of Hebrews 10, I should say, for the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. So there was nothing at all in the law that would make a person right with God. And that's because all of those things in the law are types and shadows and figures of the true. So circumcision itself is a figure of the true. It's not the real thing. It's a sign of what would happen in the heart. Now today, we're we're not really too much concerned about circumcision. I don't think you're going to hear too many preachers standing in pulpits today telling everybody they need to be circumcised in order to be saved but what you will find is there are a lot of people a lot of preachers telling people there are things they must do in order to be right with God now for example uh, you have people all the time saying that you must do righteous acts to be right with God and so you have Roman Catholicism and you have Lutheranism and Campbellism and Mormonism and there are many others that teach baptism is necessary for salvation. But what is baptism? Well, baptism is an outward act. It's an outward sign of what's happened in the heart. 
And that gets confused and jumbled up somewhat by some of the Protestants and they don't get it right because you have those like the Presbyterians that make it a sign to the covenant relationship with God. And so therefore they say what you should do is baptize your infant infant children because they're in the covenant relationship with God. And so they don't see that baptism is actually a sign of the operation that's already taken place by faith in a person's heart. And that's one of the main reasons why we never baptize a baby because they don't have any inward change that's taken place by putting their faith in Christ. So we're not baptized in order to be saved but to give an outward sign, to give a testimony of our faith in Christ. And the great confusion in Christianity is that people think that they can be saved by doing the rites and the rituals which is really no different at all than what the Judaizers taught. So Paul just demolished that argument that circumcision is required for justification because the number one guy in Judaism, the one, who, who, the one example that they all look to, the one who is the father of the spiritual nation, Abraham, was justified not when he was circumcised by man, but when he believed in God. So the Galatians could not become children of Abraham by circumcision. They were already children of God by faith. But Paul's not one to rest his case so easily. He uh, pounds this point home further because Paul never leaves an opponent with wiggle room. I mean, when he gets you down, he's content to stomp on you. He breaks the arguments to pieces, and then he grinds the pieces to powder. So he continues to say, not only does the, not, the, does not the law, does the law doesn't save, but everyone who tries to be saved that way is under the curse of the law. So next we look at the curse of the law. Verse number 10. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Now Paul quotes more Old Testament, and this time he goes to Deuteronomy 27, verse number 26, where it says, Cursed be he that confirmeth not all the words of the law to do them, and all the people shall say, Amen. Now the question becomes now, is it possible to be justified by the law. Now we're going to bring the whole law into the picture. I'm not talking about just circumcision. That is representative of the law. But is it possible in any way for people to be justified by the law? Now you ready for the answer to that question? The answer to the question, and hold on to your seat for it, the answer is yes. Now if you look at verse number 12, the scripture says, and the law is not of faith, but the man that doeth them shall live in them. Now he says, the man that does the law shall live in it. In other words, if he can do it, if he can keep it, then he can live in it. Well, is that good news? No, it's actually horrible news. Because God gave Adam a condition for life, which was a covenant of obedience. And as long as Adam could obey God, then he could live forever in the Garden of Eden. So what is the first condition of life in the law. If you're going to have life in the law, if you can achieve it, what's the first condition? The first one is you must keep it perfectly. There is no room for mistake. It's not good enough to wish that you could keep all of the commandments. It's not good enough to have the desire to love God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. In fact, your thoughts have to be 
absolutely perfect because Jesus said, what you think about can even be sin. Committing, he says, you think about committing an adultery, then you've already committed it in your heart. When you get angry without a cause, he said, you have already murdered in your heart. And even Paul was confused about that before he got this understanding. Before he became converted, he boasted in the outward performance of the law. And he was only thinking of the law in a physical way. So he was just that typical Pharisee that Jesus talked about in Matthew chapter 6. Outward performance was their show. And it mattered not at all what was in their heart. But the very thing that Jesus was after is the thing that's in the heart. And so the law demands perfect obedience. There can't be any slip-ups. You can't just get close to it. You can't get close to it. Close only counts, as we say, in horseshoes and hand grenades. With the law, you have to have a ringer every time. You have to be exactly right on. Then the second condition to live in the law is that you must keep it perpetually. Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law. So it's not just the minute that you're sitting here in the church and and here all your thoughts and your actions must be true. And quite seriously, I doubt that they all are. If you look at the back of the head of somebody in front of you and you just got any kind of contempt for that person at all, then you've just broken God's command that you are to love your neighbor as yourself. You see, obedience is not a church word. It's an every minute of every hour, of every day, of every week, of every month, of every year, of every decade, for your entire life, as long as you have breath to breathe, it's a word that must be kept. Obedience has to be kept up. The law says, I will give you life, but you have to meet the conditions. Keep me perfectly and keep me perpetually. Now, do you see a problem with that? Let's suppose you could keep it all or you think you are keeping it all perfectly and perpetually. You ever heard this saying? Ignorance of the law is no excuse. Now you have another prerequisite for being saved by the law, and that is you, you have to know what it is. You have to know all of it. How are you going to perform it? How can you do it if you don't know all of it? So you even have to have perfect knowledge of the law. And I would dare say that if I were to ask randomly somebody in our congregation to stand up and would you please recite for me the Ten Commandments? I I would say that probably most of you wouldn't be able to do it. Now I'm not saying you don't know them. Yeah, you know them, but I I think it would probably take a little prompting to to get it in your head, you know, well, can I really say the Ten Commandments? Well, you know, I know a preacher once who said that there are over 5,000 commandments in the Bible. Now, I don't know if he counted them all. I kind of seriously doubt that he did. But what if he was wrong? What, what, he made the statement there are over 5,000 commands in the Bible. What if he's wrong? What if there's 4,999? Well, he told a lie. And let God be true and every man a liar. But let's say he is right. There are over 5,000 commandments in the Bible. Can you name 25 of them? You see the problem here? You have to know them all before you can do them all. And sins of omission are also, or are still sins. So you have to do them, all of them, every single one of them, from the day that you were born until the day that you die. You know, I was thinking about that. You would have to keep all of them from the day that you were born. You know what David said? He said, the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they're born, speaking 
lies. And you might think, well, that's okay. That's not really a problem because of the grace of God. The grace of God takes care of an infant that's dying in infancy. He's not accountable for his sins, and we do believe that. But the problem is you're falling back on the grace of God when you have been determined to be saved by perfect obedience. And once you've committed yourself to the law, that means you can't switch between the two. You can't put grace and law together. They're two mutually exclusive principles. So once you commit to be saved by the law, forget about grace because you have, you have to live in the law. Now, rather than just keep on with all of that, we simply conclude with this, that the law says, you can live if you can keep me. But nobody ever can, nobody ever will, nobody ever does. So it can't save you. So verse 11, Paul says, the just, because you can't keep the law, he says, the just shall live by faith. Now there Paul's quoting scripture again to them. That comes from Habakkuk 2 verse 4. So the just are not the ones who have kept the law perfectly. Otherwise there is no one that is just. So verse number 12 says the law is not of faith. The law never asks anybody to believe anything in order to live. It says keep all of me perfectly and perpetually. So what does the law do? It condemns you. It curses you because breaking the law, which you have done, you do, and you will do, breaking the law incurs a penalty. So the third condition of the law is that you must pay the penalty. If you're going to be saved by it, you have to keep it perfectly and perpetually. But if you don't, then you must pay the penalty. And the penalty is death. So if you want to live by the law, you'll die by the law. If you cast your lot with the law keepers, then you have to take everything that goes with it. So the Judaizers, hearing all of this, they can't dispute it. And a little bit later on, we're going to get to their argument. Uh, they find, they'll recognize, of course, that, that Paul is right about this. You can't argue with his reasoning that Abraham's justified before circumcision. So they're going to argue, we'll see a little bit later on, they're going to have to argue for a change in the law or a change in God's method of dealing with people. So the Judaizers can't dispute this. They have nowhere to run from Paul's logic. They love the law, but they don't love it in the way that David did. David said that he delighted in the law. And the Jews thought, well, we delight in the law too until they found out about this. When they finally got this point, now the law doesn't look too friendly anymore, not as they first thought. So if they like the blessings of the law and they're counting on blessings that are received by the law, then they just have to remember that the Old Testament is also filled with curses because of the law. So if you want the blessings, be ready to take the curses. So Paul quotes scripture. Law is scripture. The curses of the law are scripture. And you can't get any clearer than what it says in Deuteronomy 27, 26. And Hebrews says, he that despised Moses' law died without mercy. So verses 10 and 12 in Galatians 3 are horrible news for legalists. These are condemning verses. There is no hope for them. I mean, this, is, this sounds the death nail for anybody who wants to be uh, who desires to be justified by the law. So what's the good news that we find in it? Well, the good news, number three, is the commendation of faith. Verse 13 says, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. 
Now, here, Paul returns the Galatians to the thought he had in verse 1. Oh, foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath evidently, been evidently set forth, crucified among you. Now, you see where he's going? He goes back to the cross. He comes back to the real fountainhead of blessing, which is faith in Jesus Christ and what happened at the cross. Now, here's the thing. He's just hammered them on the law. And although it's true that they are justified by faith, that doesn't mean that the law is out of the picture. Something still has to be done about the law because they've broken it. They're justly condemned for doing so. So in verse 13, we find great hope because that penalty is hanging out there. The, the law is waiting to exact its toll. The law is waiting to get its just reward. And the law is not going to quit pursuing you until it gets it. So somebody has to step out in front of the law. It has to satisfy the demand of punishment. And that's what Christ did. He stepped in front of the law. He rose to the judgment bar and he said, I will pay the penalty. I'll take the punishment. And where did Jesus do that? He did it at the cross. So the cross was the place of judgment. Now notice what the law says. The law says, cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Now we're back to the Old Testament once again. The Bible... The scriptures are always the definitive answer for everything. We go to God's word. So take your Bible and turn to Deuteronomy 21. And we'll look at this. And the context of this I I hope that you'll find to be interesting. Because this is speaking about the punishment of a rebellious son. This is a punishment of a son that disobeys his parents by his vile behavior. So in Deuteronomy 21, at verse number 20... And they shall say unto the elders of his city, that's, that's the parents of this child, and they shall say unto the elders of his city, this our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. And all the men of his city shall stone him with stones that he die. So shalt thou put evil away from among you. And all Israel shall hear and fear. And if a man have committed a sin worthy of death and he be put to death, and thou hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night upon the tree, but thou shalt in any wise bury him that day. For he that is hanged is accursed of God, that thy land be not defiled, which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance. So the punishment of any sin that's worthy of death was death by stoning, and then the violator... Not in all cases, but in some cases, the violator was hung on a tree. Now, the reason that they did that was just to make a a huge statement, just even a bigger statement of how terrible the crimes that this person committed were. So it wasn't just a rebellious son that was stoned to death and then hung on a tree. But I think it's very interesting that that statement is made immediately after the example of the rebellious son. And when Jesus took our sins on the cross, he took the punishment of a rebellious son. All of our sins were placed upon him. Our disobedience to the Father became his disobedience. Now, understand what I'm saying and pay attention. He was not personally rebellious. He was the perfect son of God. But he took the punishment as if he were rebellious. 
Now, did you notice there that he took the sins, or it mentions there the sins of gluttony and drunkenness? And those are two things that Jesus was accused of, wasn't it? He was accused of being a glutton and a wine-bibber. I just found that very interesting that that was in the law, and it comes right here in the same context of being hung on a tree. So he took that sin and all other sins, all the rebellion against the Father's holy law. And so the disobedient son has to be hanged on a tree, and that signified the curse of God was on him. And that's the reference that we find in Galatians 3.13. Well, Christ was not cursed by God, but he became the curse in order that he might redeem us from the penalty of the law. Now there, that, that fact, the fact that Jesus was hung on a cross was a very difficult thing for the Jews to handle. Jesus was crucified as a criminal. He was put on a tree. When he, when he was brought to Jerusalem, they said, crucify him, crucify him. And they accused him of blasphemy, and well, they thought that he should have been hung on a tree. And so whenever a Christian would mention salvation in Christ, the Jews would always come back, with, but, but he was hanged on a tree. He was cursed by God. How can you say that the Son of God, how can you say that the Savior can be cursed by God? And it wasn't until they truly understood that it wasn't for his own sins that he was hung on the tree, but it was for their sins that he became a curse for them that he died in their place that they began to understand how salvation can be real in Jesus Christ. Now in verse 14, we get the result that all of us are after. How are Jews and Gentiles to be just with God? Well, it's through Christ and not through perfect obedience to the law. That can never happen. It has to come through the perfect obedience of Jesus. So everyone that believes in Christ becomes heirs of God through faith. So Christ became the curse. So he says in verse 14, he became the curse, Christ became the curse, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Now two quick points and we'll be done for tonight. Through the sacrifice of Christ, we receive, first of all, the blessing of justification. Now that's what we're all after here, the blessing of justification. How can we be just with God? And the answer is that faith in Christ makes us justified. Now I want you to notice how Paul terms this. He calls it the blessing of Abraham. Well, what is that blessing of Abraham? Well, it's the exact equivalent of justification. Verse 6 says, Even as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Or in keeping in the same terminology that we're using, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for justification. Now notice verse 9. So then, they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. So the blessing is justification. Now secondly, we have the blessing of the Spirit that we might receive the promise of the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is received by faith, and what a wonderful promise that he is. Studying that on Sunday nights, what a wonderful promise it is to have the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit's work to sanctify us. It's his operation in our life that makes us holy in the presence of God. So the sacrifice of Christ is made, the blood of Christ is shed, and the Holy Spirit takes that and he makes that effectual for the salvation of the believer. Now I was asked a few weeks ago if, if I was going to mention this next part, and you really can't talk about justification unless you do this. 
Now we've already discussed that justification is synonymous with righteousness. I mean, it's the same word in this passage. And we have been made just because Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. So justification is the imputation of Christ's righteousness. So those two things are one and the same. Justification is the same thing as the imputation of Christ's righteousness. Well, I was reading one commentator that said, Scripture does not teach that his perfect obedience to the law is reckoned to us. Now, I can only comment on that as how tragic is that opinion? Where do we, where do we get our righteousness? I mean, is, is bearing the curse enough? Is that enough? Or don't we also need positive righteousness? It's not just the negative. We have to have positive righteousness. J. Gresham Mockham wrote, If Christ had merely paid the penalty of sin for us and done nothing more, we should be at best back in the situation in which Adam found himself when God placed him under the covenant of works. Attainment of eternal life would have been dependent upon our perfect obedience to the law of God. So would we be any better off? Well, that doesn't make us any better off. Go back and review point number two. Now, for those of you who know who I'm talking about, this is, to me, is an astounding statement, but it was William MacDonald who made that previous statement. Scripture does not teach that perfect obedience to the law is reckoned to us. Now, many of you have asked me, what's a good commentary that I could get? And I said, well, one of my favorites is William MacDonald. I mean, uh, for a one-volume commentary, if you're not interested in real deep, deep theology and trying to explain things, William MacDonald's a good, a good commentary. But, You can't trust every commentator. I mean, he makes a comment like this. Scripture does not teach that perfect obedience to the law is reckoned to. It's not Christ's obedience. But J. Gresham Malcolm correctly said, Christ has merited for them the reward of perfect obedience to the law. So, of course, Christ's righteousness is reckoned to us. We are counted righteous in the sight of God because our righteousness is Christ's righteousness. Now, here is the whole issue here, why this has to be so. It's because Christ cannot give us his intrinsic righteousness. Now, intrinsic righteousness is one of those things that I mentioned comes under the incommunicable attributes of God. That means something that is an attribute of God that he can't give to us. It, he doesn't communicate to that, us, that, that to us. So, his 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 own inherent intrinsic righteousness is incommunicable. So what do we have to have? Well, we had to have Christ earn righteousness that he could give to us. And that's what Christ did with his perfect life. And so when you trust in Jesus Christ, he takes the perfection of all these things that he did in his life, his perfect righteousness, and he transfers it to us. So what happens is our sins get transferred to Christ, and his righteousness gets transferred to us. Now, folks, that's a good trade for us, but it's a bad trade for him. And the reason that it's so bad for him is because it meant that he had to take all the penalty of those sins that were laid upon him. He had to go to the cross to die because all of our sins were transferred upon him. Great trade for us, but not so good for him. So it means the father had to turn his back on him when he was 
suffering on the cross for us. So that caused the Apostle Paul to say in another place, thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift. Or as the hymn writer said, this the power of the cross, son of God slain for us. What a love, what a cost. We stand forgiven at the cross. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our lesson tonight. Thank you for these great words that we find in the book of Galatians. We thank you for Jesus Christ who is willing to make that trade, willing to take our sins in the place of his righteousness. He gave it freely to us. And we thank you, Lord, that you have allowed us to receive it by faith. Not a thing that we have to do for it. We simply believe what you did for us. Lord, help us to think about that unspeakable gift every day of our life and to share it with others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.